1: This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Paul Harding, on his latest novel, This Other Eden. Is the author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning Tinkers and Enon. He teaches at the MFA in Creative Writing and Literature at Stony Brook University. And today we're going to be talking about Paul's latest novel, which is This Other Eden. Paul, welcome to Little Atoms. Oh, thank you, Neil. It's a great pleasure to be here. First of all, how would you describe the novel?
2: a vast cauldron of everything that I've been reading and listening to and looking at for the past 10 years. I work sort of by collage as it were. So it started off life as just me taking a little bit of a scene that had to do with a very minor character in the previous novel, Enon. And I was just writing about this character. She's like 80 or 90 years old in Enon. So I just thought, well, what if I just find her in her home when she's like 10 years old, 80 years earlier? I was just kind of, I knew it wouldn't be the novel, but I was just writing, just trying to, you know, to to invoke something. And then in the course of reading a bunch of uh, material about the the history of organized labor in the United States after the U.S. Civil War, I discovered a number of communities that were either all black or racially integrated. And one of the places that I found very early on was a, a place called Malaga Island, which is off the coast of the state of Maine, that had been the site of a, um, a racially integrated settlement community for like 125 years, beginning in like the 1790s. And then in 1912, the state of Maine evicted everybody from the island. So I ended up sort of discovering that one of the characters in this other kind of Enon-esque scene that I had been just sort of puttering around with, I just recognized one day that, oh, you know, that person out there painting the meadow and painting the haystacks with his oil paints, I think he's probably from Malaga Island. He's one of the people that either about to be evicted or had already been evicted. So then the rest of the story was just kind of taking this particular island and thinking about it as, um, as related to, it's you know, a quintessential Maine story, it's a quintessential New England story, it's Quintessential. U.S. story, but it's also a quintessential human story, that
1: of sort of being displaced, displacement. And it sort of went from there. So you've completely preempted my next question there, which I wasn't (laughs) expecting, but I want you to elaborate on it a little bit more, which is that the majority of this book takes place on Malaga Island, or Mm -hmm. Apple Island, as it's called, in the book. But there is a section that takes place. One of the characters, Ethan Honey, Um, travels to Enon, Massachusetts in the novel, which of course was the, um, or Enon was the, um, the, the title of your previous novel. So yeah, tell us more about how all of your work relates, I guess. How does this novel hark back to your previous two novels? It sort of
2: happens by, I don't know, willful accident or something, something like that. It's not quite as, it didn't start off quite as, um, deliberate to say Faulkner's "Yokna Patafa, but I, Faulkner is rarely far from my mind. When I discovered the story of Malaga Island, a couple of the historical facts, um, I didn't do much research. Once I realized I wanted to write about an island that was like uh, an island and, and, and the characters who had similar circumstances, I, I stopped doing research because the nonfiction history of Malaga Island wasn't really mine to tell. And I immediately had all these kind of like literary ideas about it. So in Tinkers, Tinkers is set, in my first novel, Tinkers is set in Maine. My my maternal grandparents are from Maine. So Maine has this kind of hold on my imagination. And one of the um, families that was evicted from Malaga Island was sent off to a charmingly named place called the Maine School for the Feeble-Minded, which had served as the kind of model for um, a sort of asylum that one of the... Characters and tinkers was was in danger of being committed to. So I started finding all these different points of contact, and I had already been writing this sort of bucolic, weird little stray passage set in Enon, which was where all of the novels are partially set. And so they just they have this kind of a nice overlap. So that's the section in this other Eden that is set in Enon is uh, some of the earliest writing that I that I was doing um, when I was just again trying to kind of like invoke invoke the novel.
1: And you've just said the uh, the nonfiction story of Malaga Island is not yours to tell, but I am going to get you to tell a little bit of it before we actually oh, sure. go into the, uh, mm-hmm. the fictionalized version of it. So if we were to go to Malaga Island like now, what's it like?
2: I think so that again, w- once I realized I was going to write a kind of fictionalized version of my own, you know, my own fictionalized version of a story similar to that of Malaga, I I stopped doing research. So, for instance, I've never been to Malaga Island itself. But what I know about it is that it is, or what I think I know about it, is that it is now a state park. And I think you still have to take your own boat to get there. It's only two or 300 yards off the main, off the coast but i think that they have they may occasionally have guided tours there i don't think there're really any of the original uh, structures still still there it's kind of just a modest small island that's just off the coast of maine
1: so the hotel mentioned in the book never gets built because i have been to coastal maine and it is very nice but also very like very posh
2: oh yeah absolutely yep yeah. um and the yeah well there's parts of coastal maine and then there's parts of coastal maine but yeah at, i think that you know, my memory of the factual story is that in some form or degree, um, there is, the, you know, one of the pretexts for evicting all the people from this island was the idea that they were going to grow the tourism industry and come, you know, put up some kind of a hotel or something like that. Nothing ever came of it. And I, the kind of tone that I remember, or I think I remember from that being mentioned was that it, it was just the thinnest of pretexts just to sort of lever the people off the island.
1: So the real, the real settlers then, generally speaking, who would they have been and why were they there?
2: Well, original, so the, the original, um, and I, I've since learned that even some of this is wrong, that, that factually wrong, but the original people to end up on, on Malaga Island were uh, a formerly enslaved black guy named Benjamin Darling is the name in, um, in historical fact. And his wife, Patience, I think his wife's name is, and she was, she was from Galway, Ireland, and he was uh, Black. Uh, and again, they didn't know whether he was, if he had been freed from enslavement or if he escaped it. That was always some, some question about that. And as far as I know, they, the two of them, uh, started the settlement. And, and this is where, this is one of these things where, where you work on something that, you know, overlaps a little bit with fact, but you're not, you, you're really spending all your time and energy trying to get the imagined version of that, you know, the, of, of the, your own story, your own version of it, up to kind of critical mass. I end up forgetting what's factual and what's imagined. It's all true. It's a, you know, but I think that the two of them were there by themselves. And maybe I'm not quite sure how other people came to be on the island. I don't, I don't know if it was just them and their children, or I don't, I don't quite know how the sort of community uh, came together factually.
1: And so you have characters called Patience of Benjamin, but Patience of Benjamin Honey, and they are the founders of the island. And you describe a passage, and there's an amazing passage in the book where they're beset by a hurricane when they're first, first settled the island.
2: I probably went so far as to see if there were any hurricanes, you know, in, in history. I think there may have been one. I, th- I think I said it in 1815. And I just, it was just that, that hurricane was a combination of. And its most sort of gut level um uh motive for writing it was i my books tend to be sort of um kind of interior transcendentalist birch bark metaphysics kind of very lyric and pastoral and so i just just i just had this intuition this time that. I want to write like a big Sturm und Drang, like operatic opening set piece for the, you know, I wanted to really just see if I could pull off one of these tour de force kind of openings. But it also, um, it also resonated. I didn't want to just, I didn't want it to just be ornamental. It also resonated deeply because from the very beginning, some of the first, again, kind of literary or, yeah, literary or kind of metaphorical um, I kind of had a repertoire or a bouquet of metaphor, you know, metaphors and anal- analogies for so the island being like, um, in some ways, Noah's Ark, and like in some ways the Pequod, which is the ship in Herman Melville's novel Moby Dick, um, and in some ways like the Tempest, the island and the Tempest, um, Shakespeare's play, and so <laughs> what goes better with you know with with ships at sea than than big storms. So again, I just it was kind of just so much of writing these novels and and you learn over time is just you need to if you think I'm going to be with these characters in this story for 6 or 7 or 8 or 9 years, you want to spend the day making everyday making sentences that give you like the deepest kind of artistic satisfaction and joy to to make. So you you know, I just want to write about the cool stuff that I've been reading and thinking about and see if I can synthesize this stuff or collage it in a cool way
1: and then i want to talk about the well i was going to say the next generation but there's there's generations in between i guess but the elder generations on the island as is now in the the contemporary setting of the story which is the um the the early 20th century are esther and Ihar honey her um son, stroke brother Um, Tell us something about these people.
2: Well, I think of Esther as um, the matriarch, um, I think, in some way of the island. And in some ways, she's probably the book's main, main character. The way that the narrative brings the reader through the story, it's almost as if the protagonist or the main characters sort of change in different parts of the novel. But Esther, I think, sort of presides. She's sort of the... The presiding spirit. She's well versed in the Bible, particularly the Old Testament. She's well versed in Shakespeare, both of which her father taught her. I kind of thought of her in almost like I, I teach the Old Testament and I teach Shakespeare, kind of A B between them every semester. And when I was writing about her, I was just thinking about prophets and prophecy, as one does when one's thinking about the Old Testament, and giving her the insight that I and insight that I have from teaching the Old Testament for many, many times which is the idea that prophecy is not so much this divine or supernatural power to tell the future. It is the ability to, it's a kind of combination of abilities of sort of seeing the world for how it really is and speaking truth to power. And the idea that if you know where it's at, it's no mystery where it's going to end up. And so kind of one of the kind of like levers in the story has to do with this uh, sort of well-intended, but racist, also a white missionary who comes to the island out of, you know, the best of intentions to educate the children on the island and all this sort of stuff, which he succeeds and actually exceeds, I think, what he would have wanted. But um, when Esther sees him for the first time, she, you know, uh, basically, like a premonition, she just, the first time she sees him, she sort of knows that catastrophe is not, you know, is, is close on his heels. He's bringing catastrophe to the island.
1: Into little atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today, I'm talking to Paul Harding, and we're talking about his novel, This Other Eden. And Paul, you were just talking about Matthew Diamond, who is the um, the the white missionary who comes to the island with good intentions, or as he thinks, are good intentions to civilize the islanders, but cannot hide or you know cannot stomach them as well. Like he, he cannot hide the fact that he's also viscerally disgusted by these people. And I want to talk about how I guess, through, you know, through his character is there to represent. I mean, that whole wider society that eventually does encroach on them. And we'll talk about you know what happens to the people and and the sort of forces that enact that. But like the two sides of Matthew seem to basically represent that wider wider society's views of these people.
2: Yeah, I think that's I think that's fair to say. I think that it's um, what's interesting to to me about him is, yeah, I think there's that idea that he's still the thing to which he is entitled without thinking very much is he's entitled to thinking that he can come and save these people in a certain way which is kind of ultimately patronizing and dehumanizing, but the thing the the thing that i you know as a writer I was looking for ways to make characters complicated and irreducible, not just complicated for the sake of complication, so one of the things that fascinated me about about him is what fascinates me about a lot of, say, Shakespeare's characters is that he knows he's racist and he knows that it's wrong to be racist and he knows it's shameful. And it is, I think he calls it himself an affliction. And that is always fascinating to me as a novelist and as a private citizen as well. But the idea that we often know better than we actually feel or act. And so I thought that was a very great kind of central kind of polarity or tension to set up in his character and his his that racism I, that that was it wasn't late coming but it was sort of I found the way into that you know the way to sort of get that onto the page you know well you know, more than halfway through writing the novel when um, I'm kind of a theology nerd or junkie along with teaching the Old Testament and I've read you know spent many years reading many thousands of pages of the Swiss theologian Karl Barth, and um, he's a remarkable writer, remarkable thinker, and it's it's metaphysics, it's cosmology, and so I'm you know I'm I'm hooked when I hear that stuff. But after years of reading him and admiring him, and he was also one of the founders of what was called the Confessing Church, which was a church in um, in uh, Germany and Switzerland and Austria that, that um, uh, openly it was one of the only institutions to openly defy Hitler. Um, throughout the World War II, so the Confessing Church helped Jews get, you know, get out of the get out of the country or advocated for them. Anyway, in anyway, um, years later, I'm reading through a you know kind of a obscure book of his correspondence, and he just sort of offhandedly says to uh, whoever it is he's writing the letter to uh, um, something about like I'm glad that my son is not is not beset by the sa- the same affliction that I have, which is the the visceral repulsion I feel when I'm in the presence of a living Jew. And so that knocked me, you know, right on my butt. And so it was just astonishing, right? And just that, you know, what was particularly disgusting about it was the presence of a living Jew, you know, it was just so dreadful. And so there I was with this, I had admired him for many years. And when the Nazis rolled through the world, he was one of the few people who actually did something. And neither, you know, and that self-confessed kind of um prejudice he felt against jewish people all those things were true and nothing could they didn't cancel each other out they were all true at the same time and so (laughs) i was wrestling with mike carl why did you you know this is dreadful i as a writer as a novelist, i was like that's gold and i gave matthew diamond a version of that confession which he confesses in a letter to um, somebody he's corresponding with
1: and the person he's corresponding with um Ethan honey he sends to go and stay with this other man in Enon Massachusetts mainly because this is a um, the the island is a a mixed community there you know there's various different generations there've been inbred and like they're all different shades basically and so mm-hmm. Ethan is the one that most passes as white and so he's the one that's chosen to be sent to basically get away from the island and hopefully have a future. And so he ends up in in Enon. And there's before we talk about while he's there, there's another really bravura passage in the book um, when he is traveling. So he's left the island or the island in its environs for the first time, and he's traveling on a train, and is seeing this passage where he's seeing the world anew, buildings and, and automobiles and, and things. Just tell me something about that sequence. Yeah, that was, it's, it's
2: funny. That so much about writing now, for me anyways, you know, it's sort of knocked up, finished the third novel, it has to do with just really imagining literally what happens to people and literally what their experience of their life is like. What is it like? Just description. I've come to think in in downright hostile, uh, I have a downright hostility now um, to any kind of motives for writing that have to do with um, explanatory impulses, you know? I think that if you're writing about the deepest things, you are beyond the realm of what can be explained. So description is what I've, so that, that passage, and I, I'm pleased that you like that passage because that was a fun little passage to write. And it, And when I was done with it, it felt like it was, it was, Telling it in some sort of strange way, but really, when I was writing it, it was just just thinking if if he had if, if, he's, if he's a fifteen year old kid, he's basically never been off this remote little island, and he got on a train, kind of in sequence as he went from probably Portland, Maine uh, down to the North Shore of Boston. What would it? What would he have seen? And every basically everything I thought of would have been some kind of just kind of like astonishment to him. So I sort of just tried to make a very kind of economical. I thought of it as just being sort of a transitionary, you know, um, transitionary passage. But then, you know, yeah, it sort of has this kind of interesting, it's almost like it goes from almost primeval sense he has of just being on this island that is very materially um, modest, let's say. and. Technologically, pretty much, you know, you know, non-technological and just watching all these essentially kind of like these cities go up before his eyes and automobiles and all this stuff that to him would be, you know, kind of very um, sort of exciting and frightening and, and,
1: you know, his great mixed emotions about those things. And he's developed a talent for art, and this has been spotted by Matthew, and he's been sent to to Massachusetts to basically paint and hopefully to go on to art school. And I want to talk about the way that you then subsequently use his paintings throughout the rest of the book. And I hope we can do this about, we don't want to obviously give away what happens or anything, but I, I just love the way that you then, the paintings are described later on in the book
2: Mm -hmm. yeah Uh, (laughs) that was another one of those things that sort of it was i'm a sucker for still life paintings and for landscape paintings and in the course of looking at paintings and reading about artists um i came across a 19th century american artist named charles ethan porter who um was black himself and um while i was writing this little scene out in the meadow of enon and didn't know anything even about malaga yet i came across one of his paintings that was a very beautiful large painting of a meadow that had just been hayed with all the haystacks and everything and so it was early enough in the process of composition where without having any idea who he was or what he was you know what his background was i just plunked a guy out in the middle of the meadow painting it. You know, not even the, you know, these characters from Eno were sort of like, oh, who's that guy out there painting? And I, I just kept him there. I just said, we'll see what happens with him. Then when I discovered Malaga, I was looking at that scene one day, trying to build it up. And I just realized, I don't know quite who he is yet, but I know he's from Malaga and how he got here is going to be a large part of discovering this story. So then I, um, then again, it's one of those, you make a, a virtue out of a you, part of the engagement and the fun and the you know, satisfaction of writing novels is, you know, what possibly more, you know, potentially more hackneyed and cliched thing could an artist do <laughs> about, that has to do with skin tone and color and all that stuff Then m- make a painter and just sort of become heavy handed with, with thinking about art and light and color and all this sorts of stuff. So that was just a, you know, that was just a pleasure trying to just get him to be a real painter and not to make it freighted with all sorts of, you know, figurative overtones, but just try to make him an actual painter. So I went and found this 19th century manual on painting and all that. Um, and so there's the direct depiction of him making these paintings is, is contemporary with their painting. Um, that is that the kind of the middle section of the book, but then in a later section of the book. The paintings are uh, the the subject of, I guess we could call it, catalog copy. Um, they find themselves in a kind of um, a sort of exhibition. And that just gave me another way of I'm always just looking for as many different ways to show and to write about and to think about and different idioms for showing and writing and thinking about and showing the reader the same thing. In a book. So I wanted to be able to see his paintings from all sorts of different spatial and temporal kind of um, uh, vantages and points of view.
1: I realize we haven't really talked about the antagonists of this novel. And um, towards the beginning of the book, we've taken far out of it and we see an excerpt of a a eugenics conference in London Mm. that's basically presided over by uh, one of the sons of Charles Darwin. And this obviously sort of like foreshadows what's going to happen with the islanders. Um, so tell us something about this conference.
2: Yeah, well, that, that was another thing that I just discovered. One of the early things I discovered was that almost to the week, it was probably the, at least definitely the month, July of 1912, basically while the islanders on Malga were being uh, evicted, the first international congress for eugenics was taking place in London, and that was one of those things. Where it's got it's got Maine. It has the same state hospital that was in Tinkers, and this thing is going on. Is it right? Or you're always sort of looking for a sign, so I thought that's it. I just hit the jackpot with that, and I you know knew something about the um, you know the, the history of eugenics and had read you know uh, Stephen Jay Gould had a, a book called The Mismeasure of Man, so I, you know I had a pretty good idea about. Phrenology and craniometry and all this bunk crap that just basically, you know, would take, would quantify somehow the value of humans relative to one another and relative to like their, you know, the measurements of their skulls and their noses and stuff like that. And just found it, you know, it's just such, such a, you know, dreadful, appalling sort of thing but it was done in the name of science you know and now everybody says oh it was pseudoscience and it's you know it's easy to say that now when it came out i mean actually it's not as easy to say it now it, it just it persists in some weird pernicious ways in the last year i saw an article in either science or nature magazine about how oh it turns out there's not a gay gene there's a gay cohort of genes which is not much more sophisticated i'm afraid so I'm fascinated, too, with that idea of authority and, do, you know, people getting up to the same old misadventure and bigotry with the, in this case, the imprimatur of science or behind the imprimatur of science, just exactly the same way people do with religion. You know, I think of science and religions, science and religion are just two different human idioms, um, both of which are equally vulnerable to human abuse, which is to say they're utterly vulnerable
1: to it. To finish it off. Can I get you to read this a bit?
2: Sure. I'd love to. I'll just read this is just the very opening of the book that is just a page or two about Benjamin Honey, the sort of um the, the the husband of the husband and wife who who started the started the uh the settlement on the island. This is just a little bit about his his background and how he um how he got to the island. And he was in a, a sort of uh, he wanted he it'll be self evident, but he wanted to always be an orchard keeper. So Benjamin Honey, American, Bantu, Igbo, born enslaved, freed or fled at 15, only he ever knew, ship's carpenter, aspiring orchardist, arrived on the island with his wife, Patience, nay Rafferty, Galway girl, in 1793. He brought his bag of tools, gifts from a grateful captain he had saved from drowning or plunder from a ship on which he had mutinied and murdered the captain, depending on who said, and a watertight wooden box containing twelve jute pouches. Each pouch held seeds for a different variety of apple. Honey collected the seeds during his years as a field worker and later as a sailor. He remembered being in an orchard as a child, although not where or when, with his mother, or with a woman whose face over the years had become what he pictured as his mother's and he remembered the fragrance of the trees and their fruit. The memory became a vision of the garden to which he meant to return. No mystery, it was Eden. Years passed and he added seeds to his collection. He recited the names at night before he slept. Ashmead's Colonel, Flower of Kent, Duchess of Oldenburg, and Warner's King. Ballyfatten, Cat's Head. After Benjamin and Patience Honey arrived on the island, hardly 300 feet across the channel from the mainland, just under 42 acres, 1,200 feet across, east to west, and 1,500 feet long, north to south, uninhabited then, the only human trace, an abandoned Penobscot shell berm. And after they had settled themselves, he planted his seeds. Not a seed grew. Benjamin was so infuriated by his ignorance that over the next year he crossed to the mainland whenever he could spare some time, and sought out orchards and their owners in the countryside beyond the village of six or seven houses called Foxden, that stood directly across the channel from the island, and traded his carpentry skills for seeds and advice about how they grew and how to cultivate the trees and their fruit. Benjamin and Patience and their sons and daughters and grandsons and granddaughters and great-grandchildren kept more and more to the island as time passed, But in the final years of the 18th century, it was not as dangerous as it came to be later for a black man to range the land. Any able-bodied adult who kept peace and lent a hand surviving was accepted. So the story went among his descendants. So Benjamin rambled around and found farms where he could help raise a barn or split shingles or clear an acre for crops and came home with seeds that quickened and struck roots and elaborated themselves into the shapes of his remembered paradise. Roxbury Russets, Rhode Island Greenings, Woodpeckers, and Newton Pippins. Benjamin Honey kept an orchard of 32 apple trees that began to bear fruit in the late summer of 1814, a decade after he planted them. Pippins were perfect for pies, Woodpeckers for cider. Children bit sour greenings on dares and laughed at one another when their eyes watered and mouths puckered. Russets were best straight from the tree. Benjamin Honey surveyed his orchard in the cooling air and sharpening, iridescent, ocean-bent sunset light, the greens and purples deepening from their radiant, flat, day-bright into catacombs of shadowed fruit and limb and leaf. It felt as if his mother were somewhere among the rows. She might step from behind a tree in a white Sunday dress that took up the shifting light and colors and smile at him. He inhaled the perfume, salted as everything on the island, and took a bite of the apple he held.
1: So I've been talking to Paul Harding. We've been talking about his book, This Other Eden, which is out now in the UK from Hutchison Heinemann. Paul, thank you so much for taking the time to tell me about it. Oh, it was a great pleasure, Neil. Thank you for inviting me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by ACAST and published by 89Up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening.
2: Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable.